0: hello and welcome to impressions of america i'm simon but today i am not joined by my co-host toby and vaughn and instead i will be having a one-on-one chat with my guest historian joshua tate from the university of north carolina at chapel hill joshua thanks so much for joining me here today all the way from new zealand Thanks very much for having me. Now, today we're going to be discussing conservatism in America, and in particular, a group called the New Conservatives who came about after World War II. Uh, but before we, we get into that, I'd like to just start by asking you, Josh, how you got into studying conservatism. And I'd also like to ask what it's like to study conservatism at a time where America seems so divided and we, we are seeing such extremes within the, the conservative movement.
1: That's a great question, yeah. Um... My, initially, the way I got into studying conservatism is that I had a college professor who was very enthusiastic about American history, and I came to share his passion for it, Mm -hmm. and um, through that, I I ended up becoming, you know, slightly defensive about some of the critics that I I saw out there of um, American history, and I, coming from a country, uh, New Zealand, without a strong conservative or overt conservative history. I became interested in the people who um, took on that mantle within the American context and um, and tried to, I don't know, uh, make um, or defend America, I suppose. And that was my initial uh, attraction. Um, and, they, and as I dug into the conservative movement, I found it was um, very, very good at self mythologization. Mm. Um, and I found that initially very alluring, um, and as I, I dug more and more, and it became more of a professional research passion and and I guess vocation. Uh, I started to see flaws in in conservatism, in the actors, in the ideology, and so forth. Um, and what started I guess as as kind of a sympathetic analysis became much more I think critical and accurate. And part of that change happened, part of that change had been ongoing, but I think the 2016 election really reshaped the way I thought about conservatism. Prior to that, I had kind of accepted a narrative that still had some currency within academic circles and certainly had currency in the political ones, that conservatism was a worldview of ideas, that it was, guided by first principles. Um, and I think the, the triumph of Donald Trump in the uh, Republican presidential uh, primaries and then I think the subsequent capitulation of the Republican party and, and the entire movement conservatism or just about the entire movement conservatism really put the lie of that sort of bookish narrative that conservatism was about principles and ideals. Um, and so I had been trending away from that Analysis already. And I think 2016 became a much more clarifying moment. And I think that analysis has just been borne out since then.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just I think it was yesterday, Lindsey Graham was saying there can be no conservative movement uh, without Donald Trump. So I think. uh, Yeah.
1: Tommy Laren, if you take her as um, a conservative avatar, described Donald Trump as the heart and soul of the conservative movement, which is just a stunning about face from 2016 where you had magazines like National Review running their against Donald Trump um, uh, issue in which they had several dozen of, you know, leading conservative figures denounce Donald Trump as totally anathema to conservatism. I think Um, a stunning transformation that in some ways is surprising and in some ways I think is a result of of a decades long trajectory.
0: Yeah, and we, we might touch on this a little bit um towards the end of the podcast, um kind of coming back around to this, but uh, I'd like to move on um to what's our our main topic of conversation today, which is the new Conservatives. But before I do that, I'd just like to say that if you'd like to read more on the new Conservatives, you can check out Josh's article for the Bulwark titled The Long History of Fighting Over the Term Conservative, and we'll tweet that out from our account. So um, yeah, Josh, you have qu- quite a number of articles out there, and that, that, that one was particularly uh particularly interesting read so yeah if you are are interested please uh, look at that and any other articles josh may may have on on conservative <laughs> well, well worth a read um josh before you introduce us to the new conservatives can you set the scene for us and quickly paint the picture of american life post world war ii and where the country was politically at that time
1: sure yeah so um I mean that's a big that's a big question. Yes, it I is a big should, ask. I you know. Right. Write, <laughs> write books on uh, post-war America, but uh, the way the way that I situate the new conservatives in particular is um, sort of in a moment of political and social exhal- exhalation after you know the intense and dramatic and convulsive years of the depression, yes. um, the economic deprivation of the depression, but also the political radicalism. Um, in the United States, but but especially in Europe um, during the depression. You have uh, the rise of totalitarianism in the 20s and 30s, and then obviously the cataclysmic World War II. um, And then uh, all of that is, I think, um, brought kind of to to tragic fruition in the Holocaust, and then Mm -hmm. overhanging all of the post-war period is the threat of atomic destruction. So you have all of this uh, really, you know, fever pitch of, of intellectual and political mo- emotions and currents, and then also the violence and, and destruction. And then you have uh, the 1950s, and the, the new conservatives came into particular prominence or a sort of prominence. And there's sort of a, re- a return to normalcy, I think for a lot of people, um, yeah. soldiers are being Um, sent home or soldiers have gone home, they've started families. There's a uh, growth in um, church going in higher sort of intellectual circles. There's a new interest in Christianity, whether it's in the new orthodoxy form or in a type of philosophical Christian existentialist form or in uh, Anglo-Catholicism, something like that. So you have, I guess, a revival of or semi-revival of kind of traditional living a a period of conservatism after all of the intensities of the previous decades and that's sort of embodied by um President Dwight Eisenhower the war hero but also kind of seen as a almost boring grandfatherly figure um personally quite religious um but it religious in a kind of almost non-denominational um religion for the sake of religion way um and and this, this period of kind of, yeah, conservatism after the, after the extremes before that. And even in, um, even kind of critical intellectuals um, around like the magazine Partisan Review begin to see America as a positive um, and okay and decent society uh, when beforehand they'd been much more interested in, in socialism or, or Trotskyist forms of communism. And so, yeah, there's this period where there is, for a moment, a conservative ethos. And I mean conservative in just sort of keeping things the way they are, yep. or tradition, I suppose.
0: So I suppose that, that sets us up now to talk about the new conservatives. And I, I guess you can also introduce <laughs> audience who, who the old conservatives might be in, in that regard as well. Uh, you might have already touched on.
1: Yeah, sure. So I guess I've I've... I suppose I've tried to lay it out uh, kind of clearly, but um, mm-hmm. you have this period of conservatism, and the new conservatives I think become seen as um, the spokesman, the uh, intellectual articulators of mm-hmm. this of this new period. This new period of, of tradition. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the people that that I talk about, uh, folks like Peter Vereck or yeah. um, Clinton Rossiter, John Hallowell. Uh, they, are, they tend to be academics. They tend to be um, usually Christians, high church Christians of some sort. Uh, often they have an English connection, whether they studied in the UK or they even are um, English expats to the United States. And they start expounding the idea that America could have a conservative um, culture. It could have a conservative intellectual, political, um, I guess, center about which to kind of hang themselves in this new period of of conservatism as kind of a refuge away from the extremes of fascism and the extremes of Stalinist communism. And uh, they start formulating this idea of being conservative but a new type of conservative, one that's distinct from the old right uh, and one that's distinct from, I guess, liberalism. The old right at at this stage, we're talking about, um I I guess a few different types of things we're talking about isolated intellectuals in the first half of the the 20th century Mm -hmm. folks like Irving Babbitt or H.L. Mencken or Albert J. Nock who are these obscure individualist guys who are super elitist and kind of sneer at the masses um and they were were one aspect of of American conservatism pre-45 another though or or you've got a whole bevy of different different types though. You've got anti-New Deal Republicans who believed in rugged individualism. You have Southern Democrats who were generally on board with the New Deal, but with racial limits and and limits on federal power. You have anti-New Deal movements like the Liberty League. Uh, And then I think in general, you have um, sort of a Lochner era type conservatism. Lochner era named after the Lochner era court, which is named after Lochner uh, versus New York in 1905 political case. Uh, sorry a supreme court case where you have the supreme court striking down uh federal legislation that they seem uh, that they think runs against free enterprise so you've got a bunch of different um different sort of right-wing uh things out there but they don't really together think of themselves as conservatives they don't really think of themselves as a united movement they're just sort of out there um And the new conservatives look at all of that and they think, those are not what we are. That's not conservatism. That's a kind of racialized radical or a businessman's liberalism, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, obsession with laissez faire. None of that's really conservative as we understand it. We're rebelling against that. We're becoming conscious conservatives. We are new conservatives and we're different from the liberals um, because we believe, well, in a whole
0: series of things that we can go into if if you like. But yeah, they. I I was going to ask you actually, because. I suppose if they were around today, they would be accused of being liberals or rhinos or mm-hmm. I, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm trying to understand how, how maybe would the public be able to identify sort of a, a businessman liberal compared <laughs> to a, a new conservative?
1: Yeah, OK, that's a good way of asking. Um, I think the, what the, the new conservatives were interested in conservatism as a philosophy or as a a political philosophy first. Um, And so they would look at what I've called the businessman's liberalism, um, which I think would emphasize, you know, free enterprise, Mm -hmm. uh, laissez-faire economics, um, the right for businesses to do essentially as they like with the assumption that that provides a a good social good for the the rest of society. Um, But no real conscious sense of conserving rather, Mm -hmm. you know, a belief in progress, the American way, and that sort of thing. Um, The new conservatives, like I say, were philosophy first and they differentiated themselves in their mind from liberals um, by believing, I I guess, in sort of the tragic sense of humanity and the tragic sense of history and the belief that um, human beings were flawed, progress was not assured, uh, we've just seen you know, two and a half decades of destruction. No, well, more than that, because we've got well, One as well. We've got, you know, three decades of destruction and violence. That's really put paid to the idea of of progress. Um, so perhaps it's time to give up kind of the liberal belief in the goodness, inherent goodness of man, um, or, or natural progress of history, and start clinging tightly to the things that we know work because of the lessons of history and so on. So the new conservatives were were define themselves philosophically first, but I think we are getting at talking about them as rhinos. Um, that was the problem that they had uh, in the 1950s, because politically what they believed in differed quite considerably from, I guess, the Republican right that became known as conservatives and, and as we think of as
0: conservatives now. Uh, so, so I was going to ask, because obviously kind of looming. In, in this near future you have Buckleyite conservatism and we've mm-hmm. talked about William Buckley you know a, a lot on the on our show and you you, you think of, of of that era and you, you think of how Buckley and then I, I guess Reagan kind of sort of crystallized what the Republican party party was over the, this kind of longer stretch um at, at what point are we talking about it this sort of Eisenhower conservative versus Buckley conservatism. You know, at what point is are, are we getting the, this sort of um, fight between the two, or the, or this rub up against each other uh, kind of point?
1: Yeah, I really should have framed this uh, <laughs> perhaps at the start of the conversation, and I try and I try and do this more clearly in the the piece you talked about earlier. But um, the new conservatives really start. I guess in the early 1940s, but they take mm-hmm. a particular form in the late 1940s, yeah.
0: um,
1: and then by about 1960, they are they're functionally functionally over as a, a political movement. Um, they lose the battle, I argue, with the Buckleyite conservatives, um, and retreat back to their ivory towers by and large because <laughs> conservatism. Um, they, I argue that they go a long way to establish conservatism as a coherent, meaningful thing, um, or at least seemingly coherent, meaningful thing. Um, and they established, I think, a lot of political capital for folks like Buckley to, to build on. Buckley yeah. wasn't calling himself a conservative right away. He was calling himself an individualist. Mm-hmm. Um, but the new conservatives made, I guess, conservatism respectable and meaningful. And then the Buckleyites, I guess, ended up, I argue, appropriating that label or at least partially appropriating that label and running with it and filling it up with, um, clarifying its meaning, and filling it up with um, political, I guess, implications that basically aligned with the Republican right of the era. But that was not necessarily assured because Eisenhower was a very popular president um, and the Republican party under Eisenhower, although he wasn't a particularly strong party builder, he did have um, ideas about you know, a dynamic conservatism or a modern republicanism that built on the New Deal, but in a more, um, I guess, moderate Republican way that emphasized the free market a little b- more in a public private uh, combination. And you know was anti-communist without being overly militarist. So there was perhaps opportunity for that. Um, and you have the Buckleyite right, getting a lot of their early impetus, rebelling not so much against the New Deal, because that was 15 years, 20 years before, but Mm. against Eisenhower and essentially having a fight to take over the meaning of conservatism and the meaning of the Republican Party.
0: So a couple of questions just around how kind of successful or otherwise the new conservatives were so I suppose the first one was did the did this new conservative movement actually make any gains in the public consciousness or are we talking about kind of a movement that kind of never got beyond a, a few smoke-filled rooms as it were in gentlemen's clubs you know w- what kind of impact did it have on the kind of larger political discussion if there was any
1: yeah I, no I would say somewhere in between uh it, it was certainly more than just a few people writing letters to one another it was a <laughs> Um, there was a period it was there were never it was it was an elite movement and um, primarily like I say out of academia so there were never particularly many of them but they had an outsized imprint um, I think in the I guess middle brow to, to highbrow literature and part of that was because they that was the world that they inhabited and they had networks there that could, they could write into but also I think They were seen by um, you know editors of those magazines as articulating um, the general ethos of the era that I was describing earlier. So um, there was a period where there was a vogue for conservatism and the new conservatives people like Varick and Roster and Halliwell um, and so on were were seen as its expositors. and I think related to that there were other thinkers of the era who did not or refused to call themselves conservatives, but whose ideas were not a million miles away from the new conservatives. So people like Reinhold Niebuhr, or Hannah Arendt, or Walter Lippmann, who were major thinkers, um, had similar, or even Arthur Schlesinger Jr., in some respects the historian, um, were major thinkers. Their insights into the era were, were not dissimilar to what the new conservatives were saying and the new conservatives were were open about admiring them and so between those two between the new conservatives and their kind of the figures they allied themselves to um I think they did speak to a broader a broader public um but I think there's part of the problem because you already had folks like Reinhold Niebuhr or Arthur Schlesinger Jr who were articulating a cold war type of liberalism that that already took on a lot of the insights of the new conservatives without, you know, calling themselves conservative. You, you could be a liberal and still have many of the philosophical insights that the new conservatives provided. So um, I think they, they kind of found themselves a little shoehorned in the middle. They couldn't, you know, trying to be in the center, which is essentially what they were, do, were doing. They found that they couldn't get allies to the left and they certainly couldn't get allies to the right.
0: Do you think a, a lack of a sort of figurehead for the movement impacted it? Or do you think they sort of took it as far as they could as uh, considering the sort of bounds of, of, of what the movement was? Mm-hmm.
1: I, I do think a lack of figurehead um, did affect it. I I mean, on the one hand, it's very hard to have a fighting centrism or a fighting being a fighting moderate. I think that's a very hard sell, uh, especially in a two-party system. Mm-hmm. But... At the time, um, the, the major political figures were relatively centrist. Like I say uh, in the piece, um, one of the new conservatives was a speech writer for Eisenhower. Another um, major Eisenhower aide was associated with the new conservatism. A new conservative economist became known as an, one of you know, Ike's um, house economists. So you had avenues for, um, avenues for influence there. And Eisenhower was, like I said, a popular politician, but his popularity was personal. And I don't think it was associated with a a particular ideology and he didn't try that hard to cultivate it. So um, if you had Eisenhower pushing it or if you had Nixon picking it up, perhaps that that could have been the case. Um, But yeah, there wasn't really a figurehead who who was pushing it. And the new conservatives themselves because they were still a relatively loose movement, they didn't have a clear uh, preference for, for a poorer figurehead. Some of them liked Eisenhower, some of them liked Eisenhower's presidential opponent, Adelaide, Adelaide Stevenson. Yeah. Um, some of the new conservatives ended up working in the Kennedy administration, so we, we, mm-hmm. they were as Democrats, um, although ironically, uh, some of those were Republicans. Um, so you, you have this kind of division of even enthusiasm for, for political leaders among the new conservatives. And as I argue in the piece, well, that's one of the things that really hampered them. But it's, it's hard to say there was a political figure out there in the same way that Barry Goldwater came to yeah. symbolize the the, conserv- the the right wing of the Republican Party. Um, but, you know, there were moderate Republicans they could have, um, that they could have made their standard bearer but I don't know if their heart was really in it. They were sort of intellectuals and academics first rather than um, mm-hmm. people trying to forge a, a specific or a, a conscious political movement, unlike the Buckleyites, who were very conscious movement builders.
0: So before we move on to the sort of post-1960 American conservatism, I'd I just like to ask, how does Senator McCarthy and the anti-communism movement, how, how does that fit in? with the new conservatives who, who themselves were anti-communists is that correct mm-hmm.
1: yeah the new conservatives absolutely were anti-communists uh they were staunch anti-stalinists staunch anti-communists but they tended to always pair this with a an anti-fascism or an anti-right-wing totalitarianism mm-hmm. statement as well uh, they were very much a plague on both your houses people uh, especially in the the 50s when i guess fascism was much more of a memory uh, than we have, th- than we kind of imagine it today. Um, especially Peter Verick, whose brother uh, died fighting against uh, the Nazis, um, and whose father was actually a Nazi apologist. So there was some personal stuff going on there as well. But um, they were staunchly anti-communist, as were um, the Cold War liberals. They were anti-communist as well. But they, they drew a very clear line when it came to McCarthy. And this was one of the major dividing lines between the Buckleyite right and the, the New Conservatives. Uh, because initially there were some overtures, they were interested in one another, they were both talking about conservatism, they were both talking about uh, criticisms or sharing criticisms of liberalism. But McCarthy, was, McCarthy and economics were the two major dividing lines. Um, the New Conservatives, had a variety of economic ideas, but they were far to the left of the Buckley Art right. They were interested in things like Tory socialism, the conservative power of trade unions, the conservative power of Keynesian economics. Um, and so that was one dividing line. And then McCarthy was just another flashpoint. They had, they, they saw him as a a gang and a thug, and they had um they were extremely dismissive of him, and they were very disappointed by the way that Eisenhower um, failed to overtly treat with McCarthy. Eisenhower did sort of deal with McCarthy, but um, he didn't do it in a way that that the new conservatives could observe and see. And so it made them quite, um, some of them at least quite distrustful of Eisenhower's Republican party. And so, yeah, uh, McCarthyism became one of the major fault lines between the new conservatives and the Buckley outright. Um, yeah, they just had no, they, they were, ex- I think they saw him as, I guess, indicative of the tendencies of right-wing conservatism, Buckleyite conservatism.
0: So you already touched on it a little bit there with the talking about some of the um, some some people within this movement moving on to to President Kennedy's um, presidency. I, I, I was going to ask, how connected were the new conservatives? With the Republican Party uh, after kind of 1960, and after the New Conservatism kind of failed, you know, were they able to kind of resolve the failure of that movement and sort of come back into the conservative fold and maybe work with the, the Buckleyite um, Republicans, or did they kind of go back into their shell? Mm-hmm. Were they kind of aging out at that point? Anyway, I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm interested to to, to find yeah. out a bit more about that.
1: I I think the answer is all three. It depends on on who it was in particular. Um, Some of them, uh, like Will Herberg um, or Gerhard Niemeyer, ended up basically uh, becoming Buckley conservatives. They found that their ideas were more or less borne out, especially by the more traditionalist um, folks within the the National Review Buckley conservative world. And so they, they kind of went down that road. Others um, like August Heckscher and McGeorge Bundy became figures, some of them quite senior, Bundy in particular, figures within the Kennedy administration. Others uh, like Varick or Clinton Rossiter, perhaps the two best expositors of the new conservatism, they withdrew to academia, um, history and poetry and um, essentially gave up uh, gave up the struggle. Occasionally, they would show back up in the you know, 60s and, and 70s um, to write critically about the Buckley or Buckleyite right and kind of quibble with its conservative credentials. But um, yeah, I think they returned into academia back into their shells. Uh, I think Clinton Rossiter is perhaps the saddest, the saddest story. He was a, a deeply moderate um, Republican, politically speaking, who um, suffered uh, serious depression throughout his life mm-hmm. and um, after you know a couple of political upheavals and c- personal turmoils ended up um, committing suicide uh, in his early 50s. So yeah it's um, in some respects kind of a, a rough history for them.
0: I was also wondering about the, their, their thoughts on Richard Nixon uh, on, on our podcast here. We, we are uh, very interested in uh, Nixon as much for the image as he's mm-hmm. been, you know, over the last sort of fifty-six years. That the pop culture image of, of Richard Nixon and what he's become, what he stood for, and the events around him is so interesting. I, mm-hmm. I was wondering what what the new conservatives thought of Nixon, considering, considering his sort of ties to Eisenhower, obviously being the vice president, but then yeah. obviously later on he has ties to Buckley, and you have got the Southern Strategy and the, the, the sort of GOP movement of the sixties. Uh, have you got? any kind of insight in, into that
1: a little yeah uh, i i don't think they liked him um when he was with eisenhower i think they mm-hmm. saw him as you know a red baiter uh mm. in, in kind of a opportunistic way and i they they especially compared with well, some of them when they compared him with kennedy uh, saw him in a very unfavorable light um mm. i think one of the things that i i don't think we realize now is that um sort of higher brow people in the Fifties and sixties saw Nixon as a very kind of maudlin, saccharine figure who um, played to kind of the, I guess I don't know, cheesiest uh, political instincts of not just in a cynical, not just in a kind of a negative way, but in a, in kind of a sappy way. People saw him as as kind of um, yeah, overly sappy. In an inauthentic kind of way and so I think they found him distasteful politically but also kind of culturally distasteful Mm -hmm. for some of them um but yeah as I say some of them wound up in the Kennedy administration some of the more peripheral uh people involved with the new conservatism uh, one of them Daniel Boston the great American historian I think he was you could uh, he never called himself a new conservative but I think you could argue he was part of that um part of that milieu at the very least. He admired Nixon um, and and engaged with him as president. Um, and I think became, and, and in particular really admired Spiro Agnew um, and kind of became more culturally conservative as time went on um, and, and admired Nixon to some extent. Um, and another kind of peripheral figure and peripheral in, this, in his relationship with the new conservatives but important I think in his own right was uh, Russell Kirk who was, as I argue in a piece for the National Interest, um, which you should check out, um, <laughs> that, that he was one of the major conduits uh, through which the Buckleyite right, I guess, appropriated the new conservative um, title. But he he himself, he, he really admired Nixon in a lot of ways, more than most of the Buckleyite conservatives. Uh, I think he saw him in sort of the Disraeli
0: type mold. Interesting. Um... I, I, I guess, looking sort of slightly past that, you know, for me, one of the lasting legacies of, of, of Buckley is his relationship with Ronald Reagan and um, what that, that kind of sort of came to symbolise. Were any of the new Conservatives still around by the time that Buckley was sort of dancing arm in arm with Ronald Reagan around the hallways? And if so, were, did, were, did they have any particular thoughts on, on Reagan as a, as a candidate?
1: Um, I'm actually not sure about that, but I think they would very much see him in the mold of uh, you know, not, not a true conservative in the sense of uh, a tragic view of history and a tragic view yeah. of humanity and a belief in stability and evolution and kind of a Burkean reform rather than radical transformation. I think they would, they would see him very much in kind of the Manchester liberal tradition that they mm-hmm. saw um, in the Buckleyite conservative movement, so, uh, but I, you know, I think you could probably find latter-day interviews with Peter Verick in particular where he, he talked about that, but mm. I can't think of any on the top of my head. Right, okay.
0: Um, so I, I guess some of the comparisons for, for today for the new conservatives m- might be something like the Lincoln Project and the, the Never Trump Republicans. Um, and obviously many of the, the, the Lincoln Project people are connected to George W. Bush, so I'm wondering how aligned do you think the new conservative movement of, of, of post-war would be to mm-hmm. something like the Lincoln Project of today?
1: I That's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say I would say kind of in some ways they would they, they share things and I'll, I'll spell out in a sec, but I, I, I think in other ways they are quite different and there are maybe, maybe closer parallels today. But um, mm-hmm. I think where they would align with the link, where the new conservatives would align with uh, the Lincoln project, I would say, is an increasing, um, as, a, as a kind of centrism, a sort of plague on both your houses attitude, a sense of um, being from, of the right perhaps, but, but critical of the right and sharing many, I guess, enemies with the left. But I would say that the, the Lincoln project is, I think, uh, pl- they're political actors, movement builders and action first type people, where the mm-hmm. new conservatives, like they say, were very much philosophy and thought yeah. first and, and writing first and, and politics very much second which was part of their their problem Mm -hmm. and I think I would say that the the new conservatives were very interested in kind of diffusing the the I guess the, the the radicalness and the mass nature of politics out of the the era whereas I would say that the the Lincoln project guys come out of very much come out of a partisan um kind of you know the, the a very kinetic new type of politics that involves you know manipulating image hard-hitting ads um and and that sort of thing um and i i think that the new conservatives would be very much put off by the the ruthlessness and the yeah i guess the the, the raw politics that the, the the lincoln project guys give off um i would say and i i sort of hinted at this um in the the bulwark, that I think that those guys, the bulwark people, I think are coming much closer to the new conservative um, worldview in that I think that they, they remain conservative in the sense that their philosophical assumptions are conservative, but their political views, or at least for some of them, I think are, are becoming softer and much more centrist than um, I guess you know you would associate with X week, weekly standard folks, um, even t- five ten years ago. And I would say that if there's a if there's a parallel, it would probably be around the bulwark, maybe the Niskanen Center, the people who are consciously seeing themselves as as of the right, but a moderate type.
0: Do you think the new conservatives would be able to recognize the Republican Party of today, even if you know they might not necessarily support it, obviously, but do you think they would understand it if they hadn't gone through that, you know, the past 50 years of that journey? Or or do you think you, you would you would need to live through it as it were to understand, you know, where it's come from to where where it is now? Uh
1: yeah, that's a good question. I think um I think that they would. I think that they would recognize it um, to some extent. I, I think some of them would have said, uh, some of them, especially those who had been, you know, active within the Republican Party, you know, Clinton Rossiter, a moderate Republican, or Malcolm Moose, the Republican speechwriter, um, or Arthur Lawson, another um, Eisenhower aide, they would look at it and they would say, you know, this was the party of Eisenhower, this was the party of Lincoln, what on earth happened? Um, where has the moderate wing gone? But then I think Peter Varick who had, um, I think Peter Varick probably would recognize it. Uh, in, the, in the 50s, he said that the Republican party of the time when he was talking about um, the Manchester liberalism of the Republican right and also the McCarthyism of the Republican right, he said it had, it had at least halfway degenerated into a facade for either plutocratic profiteering or fascist style thought control nationalism. Um, And I think he would look at the Republican Party today and say it had all the way degenerated into a facade for either plutocratic profiteering or fascist style thought control nationalism. And I think he'd be very disappointed by that. But I think he would have seen the seeds for it in the 1950s.
0: So probably one of the I mean, there there are many. (laughs) striking points of of the Conservative movement and the Republican Party of of today. One of them, which is, I think, clear to a lot of us is the sort of anti-intellectual component of of that today. Do you think the rejection of the new Conservatives was a, a starting point for the rejection or the acceptance of anti-intellectualism within the Republican right? Or do you think that came about later uh, after sort of the, the Buckley mm-hmm. years? C- c- are you able to sort of ad- identify a point in which anti-intellectualism sort of took mm-hmm. o- over the party, as it were?
1: I That's an interesting question. I would say sort of, I don't think that the rejection of the New Conservatives plays into it so much. Mm-hmm. I think they looked at... Um, You know, the early conservative movement people very much saw themselves as intellectuals, you know, many of them spoke half a dozen languages or um, contributed to philosophy and that sort of thing. Uh, They very much saw themselves as intellectuals and they saw themselves as an alternate or counter intellectual world to, um, I guess, the mainstream intellectual world. Uh, But as part of you know, f- folks like William F. Buckley, who was like ostentatiously intelligent and ostentatiously, you know, had an ostentatious vocabulary mm-hmm. um, or you know, any number of, of conservative thinkers. And, and there are, are plenty of conservative true intellectuals that were associated with the movement. Um, but I think they saw themselves as a counter-intellectual uh, movement. And that necessarily involved a, like de- de- delegitimization of, I guess, mainstream intellectuals. So, um, and so you always had this, this negative approach to, I guess, quote unquote, liberal intellectuals even as they had their own, own intellectuals. But there was, you know, that's only when you talk about the intellectual movement there's still a political base to the, the conservative movement. And I think they always had an anti-intellectual component to them, um, and the, you know, the movement conservative intellectuals like Buckley always recognized this, and they knew that they were seen as, you know, the good intellectuals, the trustworthy ones, and you have successes like that today. I mean, like Mark Levin, for example, or um, I don't know Ben Shapiro, who who is seen as these, you know, quote unquote intelligent, um, you know. Counter intellectuals. Jordan Peterson would be another one. He's like you know a professor uh, with a Harvard background, a PhD, and um, he's one of the, the good intellectuals, so to speak. Um, so these there's still that kind of dynamic where you have the anti intellectual base and the counter intellectual establishment who are all critical of um, of the the mainstream intellectual world, and I think that through that way, that anti-intellectualism was always there, even if, I guess, we haven't always recognized it, because we remember, you know, Buckley and his, you know, eight-syllable words.
0: <laughs> uh, just just finally on this, then, do you think the, the anti-intellectual movement within the Conservative Party c- can be nailed down to one particular thing? Is it the fact that Conservatism kind of has become bankrupt on a sort of Idea basis at the moment. I mean, you you look at what the Republican Party is now, and it's you know it's identity politics, and it's mm-hmm. raging against woke liberalism, and it's you know if you vote for these people, socialism will take your dog or whatever it is. Is, is there is there something which we could identify as um, around that, as it were?
1: Was there a, a breaking point? I think. Um... I think the, the basic core of conservatism of the conservative movement has always been anti-liberalism, mm-hmm. and that has fundamentally, when you get right right down to it, and that has always involved uh, an attack on liberal ideas and liberal intellectuals as out of touch or um, out of touch with you know mainstream America or true Americans or whatever you want to call it. Um, and whether that has whether there was a specific breaking point. I'm not sure, but I part of me wants to say that it has been in the last 10 years, perhaps even earlier than that, because even in the Bush years, um, for the many faults of the Bush administration, uh, they Republicans and conservatives called themselves the party of ideas, uh, Mm. and no one is no one is waving that banner anymore and no one would mistake. (laughs) um, The Republican Party or conservative movement for that uh, anymore, and I think. Yeah, I I think Trump has become, you know, the apotheosis of this uh, because, you know, there are instincts to him and there is, you know, he's had the same political instincts for the last 30 years, but he is all identity and all symbolism all the time. Um, So perhaps, you know, that's when the final breakdown happened, but I think it comes out of a long-term, Anti-liberal worldview uh, that has just deteriorated into pure symbolism. I think you know. I think there are technological components to that. I think um, the advent of AM radio and the nature of listening to AM radio, and then subsequently um, the nature of click-based advertising for the internet has has been the major driver for that, where the 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 devolution of politics into symbols and memes and ephemeral criticisms and not picking that kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, I think that's probably, that's probably what ultimately <laughs> broke, I guess, um, the, the mind of the conservative
0: movement. What I find interesting is that we had Peter Robinson on just before mm-hmm. the election, who was a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan and is still mm-hmm. quite active. Mr. Within. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Um, and it, we were talking to him about 1984 and to Ronald Reagan. But we were also we also t- touched upon Donald Trump and he was he was still a supporter of Donald Trump. And he, he mm-hmm. still said he was, you know, going to vote for him and that kind of thing. And what, One of the interesting things that he mentioned was that on a political basis, I think it was he was better than they could have hoped for. He, he was able to sort of told the party line and bring, you know, bring the politics of, of 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 the Republican Party you know mm-hmm. with him and it was aligned to what their thinking was but on a personal basis his behavior was more abhorrent than that they could have dared uh, feared and right. it, it's interesting that we we talk about Donald Trump as this crazy figure who's out there and doing these wild things but he's still very much within the fold of the, the politics mm-hmm. of what the Republican Party has become over the last you know decade yeah. I,
1: I think there's two elements to that. One is that policy wise, um, there wasn't much to Trump. He had those instincts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he drove some things like the protectionist approach with, with China um, and obviously the uh, extreme immigration hawkism. Uh, but other than that, I think he was very open to just uh, accepting policies out of, you know the conservative policy shops like Heritage. But the other elements to that is that he brought um you know another level of the kind of emotional symbolic conservative uh i guess culture war that had been going for a long time and that was evidently craved by a considerable uh, amount of the base so he kicked you know he kicked part of the conservative right up to 11 and then the other part you know, the policy part, he wasn't particularly focused on and, and the conservative movement were able to, to use him for that. But I think to, to bring it back to the new conservatives a little bit, um, they believed in stability and evolution and opposed mass politics, they believed in, you know, good, um, they believed almost in virtue, I suppose. And I think they would look at Trump, and they would look at the trajectory of the Republican Party, and, and say, it's, the, the the Trump's behavior is the type of polarizing, you know, behavior, polarizing action that undermines democracies, mm-hmm. undermines the constitution, and I think they would see that as um, fundamentally anti-conservative. And I think folks like the Bulwark see it the same way.
0: Mm-hmm. Final question. I don't, don't want to keep too much longer. F- final question for today: Is there anything? in particular you're looking at with the current conservative or, or Republican movement, however you want to frame this, mm-hmm. kind of moving forward. Is there anything you, you have your particular eye on or their audience should have a particular eye on to see how it, how it unfolds or how it changes or how it uh, doesn't change as it were in the sort of coming political cycle, the sort of up to 2024 and uh, sure. the near future? Uh, a couple things.
1: I am very interested to see if there's, a reconstruction of what conservatism means, whether it is given kind of philosophical weight or heft again, or whether it stays as just, you know, pure symbolism as people fight over ephemeral cultural issues. Um, You know, are we going to have an election based on whether, you know, trans student athletes, you know, can can compete or or what have you. So I'm very interested if there is a reconstruction of, of conservatism or if it's just going to stay at this kind of symbolic level. I'm very interested to see if there, you know, there have been a number of efforts to kind of give policy and intellectual heft to Trumpism, the sort of like socially conservative, but big government, social welfare conservatism. Um, I'm interested to see if there is, if that's successful, if any of those attempts to kind of Make Trumpism into a successful conservative policy set um, works, or, or whether you know the Republican Party is just going to carry on being fundamentally Reaganite in their 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 politics. And I'm also interested to see whether the Never Trumpers or some of the Never Trumpers rejoin with mainstream what is now the mainstream of conservatism as they as, you know, uh, Biden and the Democrats, uh, I guess, control Washington and, and govern. And whether, you know, anti, you know, never Trump, anti-liberalism gets the better of them and they return into the conservative fold or not, or whether they stick, you know, stick with the courage of their convictions and uh, continue to critique the Trumpist right.
0: Interesting. Those are some very uh, fascinating things to look out for in the near future. Right. Uh, before we finish up, um First of all, thank you, Josh, for, for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to promote or anything um, anyone can sort of check out, as it were, if they'd like to learn learn more about your, your writings or, or, or what have you? Uh,
1: yeah, sure. I just had a, a piece come out in uh, the National Interest. Uh, it's a long-ish essay on two foundational conservative thinkers, James Burnham, who is one of, I find just endlessly fascinating, and Wilmore Kendall, perhaps one of the most colourful characters in conservative history and i argue that they're you know they were interesting and important thinkers but they laid kind of the logic down for the anti-democratic uh anti-liberal right that we see today so you can check that out at the national interest
0: fantastic josh th- thanks for for joining me here today it's, it's been a real pleasure
1: thanks for having me simon
0: um and thank you for listening and we'll have a new episode for you in the new future until then take care goodbye